The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 25th, 2019, the Forgive Everything and Count Everyone edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in CBS Radio Nirvana with John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. Hello, John. Hello, David. You and I are wearing somewhat similar shirts. We're, we're... That's true. Although, uh, as we are on brand, yours is tucked in and mine isn't. <laughs> and I've sweated through mine and you have not sweated through yours. <laughs> That's true. These, by the way, for the listening audience, these are sort of, what would you call these? Check shirts? They're check yeah. shirts. Yeah. That <laughs> laughter, that riotous laughter you heard down the line was from Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and the book Charged, the best-selling book Charged. Emily, where are you? You're you're in not. I'm in with Kansas us. City, Missouri. Thank you for asking. Well, you're seen getting outside the Beltway finally, and seen. That's right. I'm in the heartland. The heartland of the country. We are taping on Wednesday, so keep in mind as you listen, the world could be totally different tomorrow. The gardens could be blooming. There could be full ripe fruit on the vine. A gentle rain could fall from heaven and taste like ambrosia uh, <laughs> tomorrow. Not today. Um, Probably not. Anyway, on this week's GabFest, should Democrats begin the process of impeaching President Trump over the extraordinary misbehavior described in the Mueller report? Then the Supreme Court hears the big census citizenship case. What's going to happen there? And then Elizabeth Warren rolls out another mega public policy idea, a college loan forgiveness scheme. Wow. She is. She's on a roll, that Elizabeth Warren. And of course, we will have cocktail chatter. And... And I'm excited to say we have a live show to announce, the Slate Political Gab Fest. That is us. We are going to be taking part in Slate Day, which is a all-day extravaganza of podcasts and live events on June 8th in New York. And on Saturday, June 8th, from 2 to 3.30, we're going to be doing a live Gab Fest at the SVA Theater in Chelsea. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets and more information. We hope to see you there. Again, that's June 8th. From 2 to 3.30 on Saturday, go to slate.com slash live if you're going to be in New York City that day. Emily, should Democrats begin impeachment proceedings against the president? Oh, man, I don't have a strong view on this. I kept waiting for like lightning to hit so that I would decide what I think. I don't know what I think. So here's the how I've been sort of going back and forth in my mind. So on the one hand... If you go carefully through the Mueller report, um, especially if you follow the excellent explainers that Charlie Savage has been doing at The New York Times, among other coverage, you see grounds for obstruction of justice, right? I mean, especially in Trump's um, conversations with his former White House counsel, Don McGahn, you see him trying to get McGahn to do things that were obstruction, like essentially to end or impede the investigation. But Mueller didn't come out and say that this was a criminal offense. Instead, he said, well, I can't charge a sitting president and it's not fair to make a criminal accusation against someone who can't defend themselves in court. And he didn't, I mean, he sort of obliquely referred the whole matter to Congress, but he didn't do it in a sort of clear, um, forceful manner that could change 
the popular perception. So we see Trump's approval ratings go down, but we also see really committed support from Republicans. And I mention this because impeachment is for sure a legal um, matter, but it's also a political one. And so while on the one hand, it seems really important to hold the president accountable to show that the president is not above the law, which is where he is currently floating. On the other hand, when it is so obvious that Republicans are not going to support this effort for partisan reasons, I just don't see exactly how this is supposed to happen in a way that Democrats wouldn't end up taking a political fall for. But I don't know, John, what do you think? Is that just paying too much attention to like the lessons of the Clinton impeachment and the way that hurt Republicans in the next election? And am I just being too political on how I'm thinking about this? Well, I, I think being political is the right thing to be because it's a political process. And you can, I thought Nate Silver had a lovely way of uh, thinking about this, which is exactly right. Um, you, the task for Democrats is, is um, small d Democratic versus uh, small r Republican, which is to say, if, um, if you believe that your job is simply to be a weather vane of the people, then there is not, there's not actually a huge appetite in the country uh, for impeachment. And also some one poll, and I can't remember the poll, but said among Democrats, 0% listed the Russia scandal um, as their number one priority. So um, if you're just following the winds of the public, you would say no, you know, and that's also a political argument. But then if you believe your job is to um, act as the people's representative, even to sometimes do things when it's not what the people want, because they, you know, give you the power and then you make the, the decisions, then you could make a case for the rule of law must be protected, obstruction of justice can't be allowed to go forward. And I think also there's a bunch of stuff that Mueller didn't investigate that wasn't a part of his mission, but that is certainly absolutely right in the center of what Congress is supposed to do. The number one thing being the way in which the president's disordered priorities, his fear of the Russia story, has caused him to... Um, not pay as much attention to the question of the Russian interference in the election. And we saw this in a New York Times piece on Wednesday uh, where it said that the the, the uh, former head of the uh, Department of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, was told by Mick Mulvaney, don't bring up the fact that Russians are going to meddle in the 2020 elections because it, it makes the president angry. It makes him angry because he, he thinks it delegitimizes his 2016 victory. Well, that's a national security issue, and it may be a, a story that is that doesn't stand up in the end, but if it has any truth to it, the central job of a president is to protect the country against um, foreign attack, and if this is disrupting that, then that's perfectly within the, the, the range of things Congress is supposed to look at. And we also know that that was an extraordinary story about Kirsten Nielsen, but we also know that, of course, uh, the president and his team believe this because we saw Jared Kushner this week saying describing the yep. Russian interference in the 2016 election as just a couple of Facebook ads, whereas whereas the Mueller investigation described it. I, I don't have the phrase in front of me, but it was a it was a persistent, you know, deep a huge cost to the country, effectively, well, right? compelling. Same, you know, like it was much worse. Well, it was. Com I mean, yeah, it was not just what they did. I mean, in social media, it's what they did with WikiLeaks. It's what they did to try to hack um, voting machines. It was multifaceted, multi-leveled, consistent, and sustained. I thought Jared Kushner's remarks, if you put them through the ears that Republicans or conservatives heard President Obama, it was like when President Obama referred to ISIS as the JV. You know, downplaying 
uh, a threat is not, um, you know, doesn't look good on, a, on an administration official. I, that is absolutely true, although I will say that that there is this, it is also true that you should not cause fear where there isn't, there shouldn't be fear. So it's both. You have to titrate that very correctly, very carefully. Um, so a lot but of the, you're, that doesn't mean that you think that what Kushner said was just. Oh, no, what Kushner said is absurd based on the evidence that's available. So a lot of the opposition to the idea that Democrats should impeach is premised on the idea that Republicans will only obstruct and will not do their const will not will not behave in a an honorable manner will not do their constitutional duty uh paul krugman de- described this as the great republican abdication and therefore there can't be a politically effective or or even tactically effective m- much less uh morally effective impeachment process because of that emily should that determine should the fact that republicans will unify against it and will block it and delay it and and prevent it from from certainly prevent any impeachment conviction we can be pretty much guaranteed in the senate should that determine whether democrats decide to proceed i mean i keep going back to the fact that when nixon was not impeached but when he resigned the 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 real action against him only happened when there was diminishing Republican support for him when his poll numbers fell from the 80s to the 50s. That was when things moved. That is not happening for Trump. And in a world of Fox News and, you know, a partisan divide in the media, it's really hard to imagine it happening. There was a poll this week that among people for whom Fox is a primary news source, more than 80 percent of them think that there should not be impeachment and even that a lot of people think that Trump was utterly exonerated by the report. There is just a total misunderstanding of what the report actually found, which, of course, is partly due to the attorney general, Bill Barr, both his prefatory letter that hung out there for weeks is this, you know, notion of if not total exoneration, because Barr not actually didn't actually say that it it certainly spun things very um favorably for the president. So there is that just seems like a huge uphill climb. And so then you imagine a world in which, okay, so if you think it's the duty of the Democrats constitutionally to begin impeachment proceedings, that becomes like a big heavy lift. That is not something you do in five minutes. The House turns all its energy to that after, you know, extensive hearings. I do think there should be investigative hearings no matter what. But imagine then you say, you know, yes, it's time for impeachment. This is what Elizabeth Warren and to a slightly lesser degree Kamala Harris were calling for as presidential nominees. And then it turns into this like very divisive issue. It is really hard to imagine that people aren't going to split along partisan lines. Meanwhile, a lot of Democrats and independents are going to be feeling like, really, this is what Congress is spending all their energy on? This is the priority? Why can't we just wait and try to vote this guy out of office? So I just feel like the politics, again, like, yes, it is fair for the Democrats to think about whether this is going to help or hurt their chances in an election because they're never going to get a conviction, um, an impeachment conviction from the Republicans in the Senate. That is not going to happen. Um, I think that's all I think that's all true. And I think your point about, you know, the election is a, a um, perfectly reasonable place for this to be adjudicated. It doesn't have to be done through impeachment. People can make the case for impeachment. Um, I think there's certainly an, an informational benefit uh, to come from investigation. You're I do not think I, I think practically, and this is what Nancy Pelosi certainly wants, the, the and, and a lot of the presidential candidates, they believe the election is the place to adjudicate it. But actually, I don't think that's the case. You have a president who is who is, if you believe the 
report, and I do, has committed criminous acts, certainly acts that are absolutely not upholding the Constitution of the United States, not protecting the Constitution of the United States, that he's acted in his own selfish interest against the interests of the country and attempted to to distort how American the American political system and and the executive branch works and and put the government at work to do things that the government should not do. And the elections are not the way to solve that. That that is supposed to be solved by the other branches checking the president. And so if we surrender and say, oh, only elections mm-hmm. can solve this, I think we've we've gone to a, a really bad place. And and we one of the problems is that we've already lost the ability of the of the judicial branch to intervene. That we've we've surrendered the right of the judicial branch to bring charges against the president. So already right. there's wait, only wait, one Wait, wait, how branch. did that happen? The OLC. Because the judicial branch is not Mueller. He's the executive branch. Well, that 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 uh, the Department of Justice has decided it cannot prosecute the president. I see. Okay, go ahead. So, so, that, so there cannot be a criminal prosecution of the president. So we've decided the only the method... Courts. Yeah, in the courts, the only method for... for checking the president who is committing crimes and high crimes and misdemeanors is through Congress. And now you're saying that, well, Congress, since Congress can't effectively, because it's too partisanly divided, can't do it. The, the election is the way to solve that. And that's, I'm, I agree with you guys practically that yeah. that is true, but it's really grim. But there's a loss. Right. Well, it's backsliding. Point, Absolutely. And your point is clear and present danger, which is, um, uh, and I think, you know, by the way, let's, I, let's, in, let's entertain that idea for a second because I think it does connect back up with the Kirsten Nielsen point. Um, and I think it connects to a point we made before about, um, uh, about immigration a little bit differently. But if, that, if the president is, has this disordered presidency and that causes him to make bad decisions that, that uh, in the national security realm, which is the one place where you want clear decision making, I think you, your your argument of clear and present danger can't wait till the election. I think you've I think you've got some things you could marshal in that in that space. But I think ultimately, you're not going to convince 20 Republicans in the Senate to convict, um, which is what you'd need plus the Democrats to to uh, convict on impeachment. John, d- digging in on that point, do you think that we have reached a point where we're never where basically the partisanship is so locked in that we will never have the capacity to impeach and remove someone from office and that we'll never have a president's popularity drop so low. I mean, remember George mm-hmm. W. Bush's popularity dropped into the teens, I think, when the Iraq war went cockeyed. Did it, I don't think it got that low. It got it? really, it got really, it got well below where, where Trump is yeah, today. Yeah. I mean, Trump is, Trump has never sure. dropped below 35, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And he's yes. never gotten to 50. But that right. means that 35, I mean, right. this is a right. president who is doing some crazy shit. Right. And so he's never dropping below 35. Or do you think we're in a in a state of a permanent partisan divide such that you can't actually, can't have a Nixon situation yeah. ever again? Well, I think you, yeah, the reason Nixon's difficult, of course, is, and we've talked about this before, but you used to have split ticket voting back then. So you Nixon won states in which half of those states had Democratic Senators, which is to say that portion of the the electorate was willing to vote for a Republican president and a Democratic senator, and therefore the electorate was was um, sloshed around a lot more, and that meant there were Republican senators who had a lot of Democrats or Democratic leaning or people who weren't on Team GOP 
who they had to worry about. So it was a much there was a much less partisanship. Your point about Bush is interesting. Of course, in that case, you had plenty of Republicans who thought the war was going the wrong way. So they weren't um, in this case, the president has aligned with Fox News and against the liberal media, which everybody can agree on, you know, even when people are irritated with the president. And that's why you saw this week him picking fights and the press doing what it is um, seems to me to be very successful at doing over the last two years, which is when the president puts out the bait that many members of the press say, hmm, yummy, yummy bait. And so he gets into a fight with the press and everybody is back in their order on on the um, on the Republican side. So I think uh, for the moment, yes, we're locked into this. And so I think then the question politically, if this is going to get adjudicated in the 2020 elections, it seems to me the Republican line is pretty straightforward, which is there was no underlying collusion crime. There was some distasteful, unpleasant behavior, but there was no under underlying collusion crime. And as a result, uh, the president, and you asked this good question last week, the president was f- terrified of the investigation, not because he was guilty, but because he was worried it was going to ruin his presidency. And that's what all of these efforts are. They're not an effort to hide a crime. They're an effort to keep his presidency from getting ruined. So that's their line for going forward, whether you believe it or not, is one thing. On the Democratic side, it does seem to me that you could say, we think there is an absolutely rock-solid case on an obstruction. But we are operating in a system where Republicans would have to agree with us. And they, as a Republican Party, supported Roy Moore, who was a credibly accused um, uh, sex offender. offender. Um, So if they were willing to do that, um, we think it's going to be impossible to convince 20 of them in the Senate to convict uh, the president. And so that would be the Democratic spin which seems to me to be would be a way to a not engage in impeachment, which I don't think they want to do, but try and hang it on the whole party and not on the president. One of the things I find so hard about this is like life is going on unaffected, right? Like we're all getting up in the morning and going to work, and like the economy is un seems unaffected by all of these proceedings. Like if you're just a normal person who doesn't follow politics, things did not change in your life after the redacted or what after any version of the Mueller report appeared. And yet there are these, like, questions that are more mid to long term that go to your point, David. Like, are we becoming more of a country in which the president is has impunity and is above the law? And are we going to pay for that later in some way that we can't see right now, right? Like, if you go back to Watergate and you see us struggle legally with what how to investigate a president who's accused of criminal wrongdoing, we have never come up with a very satisfying answer. And one of the flaws of what's happening now is, I think, a kind of overcorrection from the previous independent counsel statute and investigations where people in both parties thought that there was just prosecutorial overreach. So they pulled it back. And then you have Mueller working for the attorney general who's appointed by the president. You know, you have this question about whether the report is going to be made public. We did get over that hurdle. Most of it is public. But it was submitted through Bill Barr, who had a big impact on how it was received and also on the ultimate question about what to do with these obstruction allegations. So I just part of me also wonders, I wonder what you guys think of this. Did Mueller leave us in the worst possible position in the sense that he implied wrongdoing, didn't let Trump off the hook, but also didn't build a clear enough case for impeachment in a way that just leaves us with this like eternal partisan divide? Yes, although I don't know that there's anything he could have done other than 
absolutely clearing the president or accusing or, you know, credibly showing that he eats babies and, and uh, you know, robs banks on Wednesdays that would have worked. Right. I, mean, I, I don't think there was a there was a clarity I, that was possible in this report. I think that the well and one of the the faults for that, I think, lies at the feet of the Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel memo that says that you can't indict the president. So everything Mueller did was within that framework with the assumption that this was not going to lead to an indictment. And I just really question the wisdom of that memo in this era that we're in now, given that you're, the special prosecutor is within the executive branch and has um, these more curtailed parameters than independent counsels had in the past. I, I really feel like that memo is looking like a mistake. All right, last word, John. Two, uh, two le- points. One, Mitt Romney uh, put out a statement after reading the Mueller report. Um, and just to the partisanship point, he, he, you know, the statement which everybody probably knows by now, but is saying it was good news he wasn't found guilty, but that he was sickened by the extent of the pervasiveness of this dishonesty and misdirection, he said, "How far we have come from the uh, aspirations and principles of the founders." He was the lo- he was the lone voice, so that gives you just a sense of um, how much more solid uh, in the president's camp. I asked Mike Lee, the other Utah senator, about whether the president's behavior, as explained in the Mueller report, met the standard for the presidency that the um, participants at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, wanted the standards they wanted for the presidency. Um, And Senator Lee didn't answer the question, but he said that um, basically there may have been some unflattering things that he he used the word unflattering in the Mueller report, but that basically every president has done unflattering things. So that just gives you a sense of where the the mainstay of of the Republican conference is. I just final point is Rudy Giuliani started the week by having said on Sunday to Jake Tapper that, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking information from the Russians. We should just note that plot that on the graph and where things were, you know, at the beginning of the Trump administration when it was considered insane and dangerous to even raise the possibility that anybody had had any connection or contact or participation in anything with any Russian. I mean, that's how far things have moved, just for those of us who are trying to kind of keep our, our balance about things. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts this week, Slate plus segment is an Ouroboros of a topic. So it's going to be about podcasts and politics. What to make of all the Democratic presidential candidates who are suddenly showing up on political podcasts. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member of Slate Plus today and hear that discussion and so many other great discussions. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, 
or has a great deal for Mother's Day, listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Supreme Court Tuesday heard arguments in the big census case in which Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who parenthetically, I would note, is quite possibly the most corrupt person ever to occupy public office in the United States, measured by pure dollar value. Uh, The Commerce Secretary shoved into the 2020 census or tried to shove into the 2020 census a question about whether the person taking the census, giving the answers to the census, is a citizen of the United States. This question everyone agrees, will unquestionably reduce census response rates. But Ross decided that he wanted it in there. The reasons he wanted it in there remain a mystery. There are the stated reasons, the stated reasons, and then the actual reasons. Um, So, Emily, what happened at this argument? And and why did conservative justices seem so blasé about about what Ross did? Yes, why did they? That is a good question. What happened in this argument was that um, conservative justices made a series of arguments that were kind of amazing, starting with Justice Kavanaugh's uh, idea that the fact that the U.N. thinks it's okay to ask a citizenship question in the census is something we should take into account. So this was amazing for two reasons. The first one, which um, Barbara Underwood, who was arguing for the state of New York, pointed out, was that the U.N. also says it's really important to test questions before you add them to the census to make sure they are not going to diminish the accuracy of the count. There was no testing done in Ross's plan to add this question to our census. But the second reason is that Lo, only a few years ago, conservatives on the Supreme Court made a big cause celeb out of ignoring international law in their own cases and said that was sort of like a legal act of being a traitor to pay attention to how other countries do things and to take that into account, for example, in an analysis of whether something constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. That was like a big no-no. But suddenly, when it's useful and convenient, like there's the UN of all entities in the mouth of Justice Kavanaugh. Then Chief Justice Roberts said that it sounded to him like it was really important for enforcement of the Voting Rights Act to have this kind of census data, even though it is really clear that that is not what really drove Ross to do this. Um, That story has just fallen apart in the course of the litigation. And also, in the 53 years since the Voting Rights Act passed, the Justice Department has never asked for census data to enforce it. And the government can't identify a single voting rights case that it needs this data for. So... That seemed odd. And I am going on too long. But the other thing I'll say is, sorry, I'm going to stop and then we'll go to the political questions Justice Gorsuch raised in a bit. A couple questions, Emily. Um, can it not be used, the UN and the fact that um, uh, that Germany and Mexico and Canada and Ireland all ask this interesting question to go to just simply this, which is the question of whether Ross was doing it because he had ill intent, that it's just, in other words... Uh, other countries have have had this idea, so it's not axiomatic that anybody who wants to put a citizenship question on is doing it because they're trying to keep, you know, uh, trying to shrink the representation of states and c- cities that have undocumented populations. I mean, I'm just not sure how that adds up when Ross has never in one second, like, said that, oh, I was paying attention to the practices of other countries, and this just seems to be, like, a good government thing to do. I mean— right. Ross added this question after Steve Bannon asked him to talk to Chris Kobach. These are folks who are anti-immigrant and 
you know, Chris Kobach's agenda is clear. He wrote about it in an opinion piece for Breitbart. It's to change the way we um, do redistricting so that we're doing it based on the voting population. We leave out all the people who are not citizens, and that includes increases the power of white rural Republican voters. Right. But uh, right. So wasn't one of the things being debated was whether if you're if your underlying motivation, if you can make a case for your pretextual argument on the mer- on the merits then even if you're even if it's a pretext for some dastardly uh underlying view that that doesn't matter that as long as you could defend the thing that's the policy wasn't that wasn't that essentially what somebody was arguing in the government's well, case well no francisco no francisco the solicitor general was arguing that but that's not the standard on the, the administrative procedures act which is the law we're talking about here the standard is like you're supposed to have a reason that you can articulate that is backed up by the record this is not a high bar right this is travel ban version 3 um, that would pass. We are in this in census land, the history of this litigation, like what were the posture of this case. We are in the land of travel ban number one, where the government did something very hastily and clumsily, has no good reason to show for it. And so there is a good reason that these district court judges found it to be arbitrary and capricious. It is true that Ross has a lot of discretion and power. If he had built up a record and come up with a real reason for doing this that held water, he'd be allowed to do it. The problem is they don't want to say what the real reason is. But legally speaking, the standard is not like, could there be any reason um, that could possibly remove this problem of ill intent? Like, that's not the analysis. You don't bend over backwards like that for the government officials. They're supposed to have a record. Isn't the problem also that there is some finding that um, that in fact this does decrease the accuracy of the count. Now there was yes. obviously a, an argument. There was some debate about that. That was a weird thing I thought too, which is people is that the so anyway there so there's there's evidence that Ross has to jump over to to prove that somehow this improves the count. Um, and it, and in fact the evidence shows the opposite. Well, I mean, there's also this, yeah. this deep the deep irony hypocrisy of them claiming that this is to help enforce the voting right to act an act which which almost <laughs> everyone associated with this administration despises and does not want to enforce it, it it smacks of that same thing when when uh what was it the comey was comey was fired for allegedly how he'd handled, he handled the hillary, the hillary clinton, clinton, thing, clinton yeah. stuff which yes. is it's it's ludicrous i mean i would point to, to two things about this issue which i find so disturbing the first point which i'm borrowing from our erstwhile colleague jamel Bowie, is is that everywhere we look with this administration and i think with the conservatives movement generally these days is this effort to lock in permanent minority power that you can be a minority not minority in the in the ethnic or racial not sense. people you can be of color poli- political political minority and maintain dominance over the political system. And we see this over and over again. And this census example is another example of it, where we're trying to, the, the administration is clearly trying to undercount Hispanics, undercount people in states where, which might benefit from a census redistricting that counted more, more Hispanics and, and more people who were not in the United States legally. Um, so to weaken the influence of those states, we see that in, in undoing the political uh, undoing the that the Florida ballot initiative to have felons, yep. former felons, be able to vote. We see it in the efforts to punish mistaken vote, voting in Texas, the gerrymandering, the elimination of polling places. Every piece of our political system 
the right is moving to to lower political yeah to lower political participation to reduce political participation so that that the power remains with those who for whom it's easiest to to participate politically which tends to be older and whiter and more conservative and it's a really bad terrible precedent it means that we're very late in the day for us politically it means that the the system is is not very effective and then the second point i want to make which is which is kind of goes with the first because again i think this is a kind of conscious effort that is coming out of the right and and it has really dire consequences which is that the census is likely to be much worse in 2020 yep. than it needs to be that's underfunded it has terrible leadership. Ross is, is you know, even separate from the census question, does not appear to be an enthusiastic leader of, of the census. And the, the Republicans, again, and the, the administration is not particularly interested in the census, except as a political tool. The data is going to be worse, and it's going to, there's going to be more mistrust of it. People are going to not want to respond to it. There's going to be ambiguity. Like, there may be a, a, a movement among the left to lie on the census about citizenship to disrupt the data so the data will itself be more corrupt. And this is just another example of how much easier it is to break something than it is to make something work. Mm -hmm. And I hate the fact that there is such a a willingness, a a kind of um, a laissez-faire willingness on the right to allow the functioning of government to get worse and to be worse at what it does and to reduce confidence in it because it, that, that, will cause a long-term damage in this country. And maybe people on the right don't care as much about it because they think having an effective government is is dangerous in certain ways, but it's it basically is bad news for us across the board when government becomes less good at what it needs to do. Emily, what's the argument for, um, or the argument against, the fact that, that until 1950, this was a question on the census? The why, that if, in other words, if they did it before, why can't they do it again? Well, they did it on and off, right? And it was also a time in which the census expanded and contracted. Like for times there were lots of questions and then sometimes fewer. And now there are 10 questions and the the citizenship question would be number 11. One of the reasons it's been whittled down so much is that um, demographers and census scientists figured out that it was really important to keep the form as short and simple as possible to improve the accuracy of the count. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons it was included before is we didn't have all that social science about how people um, filled out forms, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to address one other thing, David. So I have not heard of any movement on the left to mess up the census, but I do feel like we're asking people who have who are undocumented immigrants or just part of networks and have ties to communities with undocumented immigrants we're asking them to make a kind of excruciating choice them and their political leaders in the past like the last 3 or 4 censuses if that's a word the government worked really hard to gain the trust of hard to count communities and political activists and civic leaders in um parts of the country with lots of immigrants, they vouched for the census and the count went up, right? There is always a problem with an undercount, particularly of Latino and Asian immigrant communities. But they, the folks like stood up for the census and um, the government paid a lot of people to make sure to be messengers and it worked. The undercount in those communities went down. Now we don't have that. 
same assurance. It's going to be really hard for those same civic leaders to, would you vouch for the census? Like, are you sure that the Trump administration is not going to use this data against people? Mm-hmm. If you don't vouch for it, your community is going to suffer because, like, you know, if the city of Houston has a big undercount, then it gets fewer federal dollars. It gets less political representation, right? You have something on the line, but it's an abstract collective thing. You yourself deciding, like, are you going to tell people it's okay to do this? Or are you the person who's the undocumented immigrant? You can understand why people are not so eager to tell the Trump administration where they live if they're undocumented. I just, there's something so difficult about that. And you could imagine somebody dropping poison in the water and suggesting, let's say the court takes this off the off the uh, form. You can imagine a public official who doesn't uh, care for the census or wants to promote this idea um, somehow putting out the word that if you fill it out, you'll be tracked. And that would, you know, that would do by mischief what may be trying to be done here by law. And well, yeah. in 1940, if I recall correctly, the government did use census forms to track yes. Japanese Americans. And that is a, which they didn't it, admit until 2000. They didn't admit and apologize for it. Yeah, no. I mean, there's a federal law that makes it a crime now. It's a federal crime to share census data without authorization. I do want to say that uh, clearly. Would you trust this administration not to try to track non-citizens who identify with, with let, Latinx names? I would not trust this administration, given what we know of of their behavior so far, and and so I, I yeah, Emily, it's a it's a huge issue, and and I and also it's like, is it a, is it a crime to lie on the census? It probably is a crime to lie to the census. Probably it's a. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody gets prosecuted for throwing out their census form, as far as I know. But I but, do, I but, do want to make it clear. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I'm just wondering: is it is the right form of civil disobedience? Should you choose to be civilly disobedient? Is it to say you're not a citizen when you are, or to say that you are a citizen when you're not? Um, or should there be civil disobedience I don't want to be offering theories of how to lie on the census, but I do think that actually, despite how infuriating all of this, it is really important that there be an accurate census count. So, yeah, I, I got to stand on that side. You know, yeah. look, the Census Bureau itself estimates that six and a half million people are not going to fill out the form because of this question. The only way for immigrant communities to get their fair share of political representation and federal dollars. And I don't mean that they vote. I mean that they are counted as human beings, as people when we allocate representation. It's to fill out the census. It's like that's the bottom line here. All right. Before we go, uh, Emily, the Supreme Court also announced this week that it would hear three cases relating to employment discrimination against gay and trans people whether current law bars that kind of discrimination. Um, what Can you give us any color on those arguments, which will be next term, and and whether the court, you know, seems to be heading towards, towards protecting gay and trans people in employment uh, discrimination cases? So two of those cases are about um, gay people who said they were fired because of their sexual orientation, They won in the lower courts under a theory that the 1964 Civil Rights Act defined sex discrimination in a way that encompasses discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. There is a plausible legal argument for that. I cannot imagine in 100 years that the conservative majority on the Supreme Court is going to go for it. You know, you can read the dissents in those cases and you can see scripted what the Supreme Court is going to say. The Supreme Court's going to say, look, Congress, if you 
want this more expansive reading of the law, which Congress did not explicitly have in mind in 1964, pass a new law, provide protection against federal discrimination that way. Um, So I do not think that is good news that they took these cases or surprising. The third case is a case involving a transgender person. And for those cases, the courts have there's a much longer line of cases saying that, look, if someone fires you because you're trans, that has everything to do with your sex. And you're like, what else does it have to do with? So I'm curious about that one. And I wonder if the court took that one so that when its decision, um, you know, undermining this expanding of rights for against being fired for being um, gay. I wonder if they were like balancing it in some way. I don't know. It just it's a different kind of case conceptually when you think about it. So I'm curious about that. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Elizabeth Warren, the Maserati of public policy, rolled out another huge proposal this week. It comes after her much ballyhooed wealth tax proposal, her even more ballyhooed proposal for universal government-funded child care. She is tearing up the Democratic presidential race with public policy ideas. So what is her new proposal about, John? Uh, Well, her new proposal is that it cancels $50,000 in student loan debt for everyone who's in a household under $100,000. It then cancels uh, less debt as you get between $100,000 and $250,000. So it phases out, basically. Um, Anybody over who makes over has a household income of over $250,000, which is the top 5%, gets nothing. Um, And then it also offers free college for public colleges for two- and four-year colleges. That's essentially that's essentially the program. And I think, and there are a couple of other smaller things, which it would ultimately phase out supports for for-profit colleges. Yeah. And and I think the cost... And it also allows you to... Cl- changes the bankruptcy laws uh, as so, well. So you could clear your student debt, which I think you cannot currently clear your student loan debt. I believe that's right. Um, yeah. I think and, and so it, it would help 95% of student borrowers would get some relief. And I think 75% would eliminate all of their, their college debt, their higher ed debt. Um, and it would cost a ton of money. So I've seen numbers as high as $1.25 trillion, which Warren says is going to be paid, paid for by the wealth tax that she proposed recently. So Emily, what, what is likable about this proposal? 
Huh. Well, what's likable about it is the idea of removing this burden of debt. And I think it it's on a, a, an income-based scale, right, a sliding scale. It's not just like handing tons of money over to college-educated people who can pay it back without help. It's really because it only goes up to $50,000 and because it's on a sliding scale, it's really designed more for people who, you know, have two-year college degrees or less fancy degrees and are making less money. That seems important. And then the idea of providing free college going forward is trying to remove this um, debt burden and increase opportunity for higher education. I think the thing it doesn't do is address rising college costs, right? I mean, if the problem is that things are just getting more and more expensive, the government stepping in and paying, footing more of the bill is not going to help with that. Well, it would potentially exacerbate it. Well, but uh, I don't know about that. I mean, free college puts enormous pressure on private universities. Private universities are going to have to step up their game to compete if people can go to decent public universities and community colleges for free. So private colleges— And you think stepping up their game means making things cheaper for people because that has not been the trend that we have seen. I mean, private colleges are stepping up their game by, like, making things fancier and fancier and and charging more and more money. Potentially. I mean, I'm not sure. I don't think we know necessarily what's going to happen. It just—it doesn't— I don't know. The the availability of of free public education seems to be to be free public education at the K to 12 level seems to be an unalloyed good. And yes, there's a, a an ecosystem of private education which some people avail themselves of which they get to pay for. But I, I don't see I don't see any strong argument against free public higher education the same way I don't see any strong argument against free public K-12 education. What do I Human capital. Sorry, John. The human capital is the most important resource the country has. And the more you can cultivate it and the more educated people you have with skills that are going to help them thrive in the job market, create businesses, create, you know, advances, be better doctors and nurses, be better engineers, the the better the whole country is going to be. And so the more people you get into that system, the better we're going to be, better off we'll be in the long run. What do either of you think about the 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 person who paid off their student loans, who's not getting the fifty thousand dollars? That there's an unfairness in paying off, uh, that allowing people to to pay off their student loan debt. Uh, whereas if somebody who you know that's unfair for somebody who did who actually paid it off themselves before they got the government help. I think that's a fair argument. Here's the thing I'm confused really? about with that argument. Yeah, I mean, if but I'm here's the thing I'm confused about. Is that a generational argument? Like, if I imagine a world in which all the people who already paid their loan off are the older people who incrementally did that, because usually you pay off student loans over a number of years, it doesn't bother me a whole lot, right? It's like, okay, well, you did this thing, and you're older now, and now we're going to help the slightly young gen- younger generation, and, like, that's how it goes. But if we're talking about people of the same age, if there's, like, a significant cohort of, like, 30 to 40-year-olds who paid off all their loans, and then they look at their peers and they feel screwed, that seems different to me. Yeah. But I sort of assume what we're talking about is the former, not the latter, right? Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. That, that, uh, or you could design it in a way that would take care of that. John, I think the strong argument against this, and I'm interested in your take on it, is that it benefits people who are already winning. Right. So if you're, if you're in the position where you have $50,000 worth of college debt or graduate school debt. Right. You tend to be. You tend to be in a position where you're going to be a high earner and, and you'll be able to pay that debt off as you, as you go into your well-paid white-collar right. profession. I think, is that really I think that's, true? Well, it, it, like, 
that that if you have big bills, it tends to be because you were in uh, because you were a doctor or lawyer, went to graduate school. But I thought um, those that's people the, had much bigger bills than fifty. And well, that that's this is the idea, love. right? Yeah, that's okay. the idea of capping it at fifty, so that you're helping, but you're not over helping the person who had a huge college bill. Um, the alternative argument is if Warren says it's going to cost six hundred and fifty billion dollars, you could double um, uh, the EITC. Uh, with that amount of money and help, you know, it's a proven program. This is Michael Strain's argument that it's a proven program that helps people who are at the very bottom end. So why not? Why not spend the money that way? I I I don't give credence to that argument. Not because it's not correct. It's obviously correct. But there's always something that you could do which would help some certain class of people who are very poor more than. Whatever it is, it. But the argument here is. Wait, hang on a second, though, about the EITC. Sorry, the EITC does not help the very poor because you have to work to get it. Working poor, right? Okay, but yeah, it's the. But it helps the class of people. Right, but it helps the class of people who are. If the idea, if you accept the premise that the that college loan forgiveness helps people who are going to tend to be in more the more professional class, then then if they're already in pretty good shape, why not help the class right below them? Not the very poor, but the working poor. Well, that's, I guess my, that's I how that feel I would like go. this is going to cover people who would also benefit from an increase in the EITC, and I'm a big fan of the EITC. Um, it's not perfect, but it has a lot to recommend it. I But I feel like it's a mistake to imagine that this is like doctors and lawyers. Like, I don't think that... I, I know a lot of people with, like, under $50,000 worth of loans who are, you know, working class, like, trying really hard to hang on to the middle class, but not easily there. Right, and I also would say... Just to give you a fact for this, about 40% of new student loans go for people who are in grad school. So that's... Right. But still, the cap of 50000 doesn't directly address that stat, right? That doesn't mean that, like, anyway. People who are getting the ITC, it is great. It should be expanded. That is, I, I don't dispute that. But if you think, like, where where is it that... Bang for the buck. Where is it that, yeah, where is it that you were going to create the best long-term benefit for society? This seems to me to be a pretty good place to look improving higher education increasing access to higher education making it cheaper for people making it less onerous to do it making it easier for people to finish their degrees all that seems to make a lot of sense what's your response to the the problem the critique that we over prioritize college that we're demanding more and more credentialing from education for people that something like 60 percent of the people mm-hmm. who start college aren't necessarily ready to really do college level work like that what we really should be doing is like improving K through 12 education and then doing more vocational ed so that we're giving people a greater range of um, educational paths to different kinds of trades and professions it's an interesting I think there's some um I think it's an interesting argument. Couldn't you fix that, though, by just allowing vocational, uh, take care of vocational uh, college, uh, money spent on vocational training the same way money spent on college? Yeah, you could. John, can we turn to the po- politics mm-hmm. of this? So what what do you make of Warren's public policy first strategy? What, what does it get her? Yeah, well, I... Uh, a, I like it because it means people have to talk about her ideas. Um, and since I believe that the presidential campaigns are supposed to be a, a forum for talking about ideas, I'm I'm all for it, whether it's from a Republican or Democrat. The the what I find what what interests me or what will intrigue me is whether it is also a differentiating uh, characteristic or 
whether politics being what politics are, Elizabeth Warren this week differentiated herself from her colleagues more because she took a strong position on impeachment than because of her college. Because everybody knows that, you know, Bernie Sanders has a free college. Everybody's got a free college or a college, you know, hers is more detailed. Hers is more comprehensive, et cetera. But is that what voters use to distinguish her from the others? Or do they uh, distinguish her? Oh, she's the one who wants to really go after and impeach the president. Or do they say she's the one with all the policy proposals? That's how they distinguish her. But that doesn't necessarily get them right in their warm belly. Um, I don't know. That's one of the fun things we'll figure out. Do you think, Emily, that this brand that she's developing, I mean, I don't know that she has a lane. She doesn't, I'm not sure she represents a particular lane in the party. I don't know that the lane model works as much, but there does seem to be a Warren brand now that's distinct around mm-hmm. around public policy. Do you think yeah, that, that I mean, I is, think it, it gets her past the sort of not great poll numbers and not amazing fundraising numbers? Yes, I think that is definitely how she's trying to position herself and um, and the impeachment point you made, John, is a good one, too. It's another way of kind of standing out in like the fusillade of ideas, right, if you're the one taking that position. But also, I think she just is like really interested in into all this stuff. And it's a way of influencing the race, whether you become the nominee or not. Right. You've kind of um, laid the groundwork yeah. for a big discussion about policy. And, and you know, one thing she also keeps talking about is how this um, wealth tax she's proposed is going to pay for things. So you've also pegged policy proposals that involve spending to the notion that you're supposed to demonstrate how you can pay for them. I wonder if you could imagine happening what happened to John Edwards in 2008, which was he was the idea candidate. Wait, she has a love child? He, Sorry. He, he, was, he talked about the poor and, the, and, and then basically Barack Obama came along and people thought, oh, I like him. We swoon for him and we'll just take Edwards's policies, you know, and staple them onto him because policies are fungible. But what I like about this other. So it seems to me you have at least four things that any of these candidates, we don't know which of these four will matter. And sometimes so you have policy, electability, swoon factor, and then you have the attributes, you know, are they going to be able to handle the job when they get to it, which comes across in all kinds of different ways. And it'll be interesting to see, A, which of those rules, or B, which of those becomes just a stalking horse for some other feeling. So in other words, I really swoon for this candidate, but because I can't say that out loud, I'll go and talk about my electability. Gosh. She remains my I'm, my leader in the clubhouse, but I guess clearly not. Well, maybe so. We don't know. Let's go to cocktail chatter. So over years on this show, over many, many years, we have recommended so many things in cocktail chatter. So many cool, useful, weird articles, books, films, TV shows, podcasts, products, you name it, we've recommended it. And and a lot of other Slate shows have done that too. And now Slate has gone and collected all those recommendations that we've given and put them into a searchable database called the Slate Podcast Endorse-O-Matic. Everything we have ever chattered in one wow. handy place. And you can go to slate.com slash endorsements. Oh my God. So, I like shudder well, to think of all my boring here, legal endorsements okay, so, in there. All right. So for example, one category is locations. Emily Bazelon has recommended two locations over the years. I just looked it up. Care to, uh, care to guess on either of them, Emily? No, I refuse. One was Grand Canyon National Park. The oh, second how one, original. <laughs> the second one is Connecticut's Diaper Bank. 
Oh, that's not really a location. It's an organization, oh. but I like All that right. idea. That's really All right, John funny. Dickerson. What are your let's locations? See if, are I'm going to see what John, what locations John has recommended. John recommended. Do you want to care to guess any of your locations, John? No, I have no idea. The historic Cow Palace. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A Chicago Chicago architectural tour. The book yes, loft. Yes, that was great. Oh, the book loft. Sure. Love World War II memorial sculptures in the former Yugoslavia. Oh, well, that's those pictures, yeah. An exhibit of handmade guitars at the New York City's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Oh, I, I forgot about that last one. That's Let's see what I recommended. List. I what like locations your list I like recommended. Ooh, I recommended way too many. <laughs> Forget mine. <laughs> I have like a billion. Okay, anyway, it's a fantastic feature. You can look by location, article, music, audiobook, podcast, TV show, book, play, links and memes, video, topics, clothing, food, poem, comedy. It's just amazing. What foods have I... I've recommended the greatest white bread in the world. I oh, yeah, at that place that you like in Manhattan, yeah. right? Which yeah. is like also my nickname. <laughs> the greatest white bread in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was very good. That's a good superlative for you. That's nice. I like that. <laughs> All right. So what is your chatter to add to this great database at slate.com slash endorsements, Emily Bazelon? Okay, so I am looking for escapist videos this week as I am on the road, and I have found two. Um, One of them is actually from this week, which is a miracle since I'm usually so behind. It is only somewhat up to date because my children sent it to me. It is the We Love the Earth video by Lil Dicky. Lil Dicky is on a serious, like, raise awareness about global warming campaign this week. Um, And that video really amused and delighted me. It has voiceovers from everyone from Ariana Grande to, I don't know, whichever stars I'm supposed to know the names of that I don't. And um, it was totally delightful. I have a second one to go along with this because that was so lighthearted. I, like, couldn't believe myself. I had to add one more. So this one is not timely at all. It's the one second from the new version of A Star is Born, which is, like, I don't know, a year old, in which Lady Gaga is on stage for the first time having her moment, and she grabs the mic and, like, just runs with the song. It is the most, like, girl power, feminist, satisfying Literally like five seconds in a movie I have seen in a long time. So that scene, I bet you can just Google that scene. That scene is like one of the best scenes in film of our life. That when she really comes on just and sings. wonderful. Yes, it is terrific. And that moment, she just like yeah. grabs the mic. And I was like, you know what? That is what we need more of in this world. John Dickerson, grab that mic mm, and yeah. chatter something for us. Okay, I it's a it's a somewhat frivolous chatter, but um, everybody's familiar with the term fake news, and it has become essentially fake news has become a euphemism for things that are true. Well, things that are true, but that somebody doesn't like, so they call it fake news. But that 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 often it's really a direct red arrow at something that is totally true. So. You could explain that in the course of a thousand-word article, or you could just show it. And we had an opportunity to see it shown uh, on Wednesday when the president tweeted, I didn't call Bob Costa of the Washington Post, comma. He called me, parentheses, returned his call, close parentheses, exclamation point. Just more fake news. Here is Robert Costa's tweet from the previous evening in which he outlined the details of the interaction with the president. President Trump called me this evening in response to my request for comment on a profile story on a Trump world figure. (laughs) Oh, man. 
how can you even take any fucking thing that that president says and do anything with it at this point? It's crazy, man. Yeah, that was ridiculous. Uh, my chatter is, uh, there was just, Board Panda has this. It was also in a couple of other places, but it's a great story about, uh, or it's a rather a set of maps of the flight of eagles. And so 18 or 20 eagles were, were um, tagged in Kazakhstan and someone wanted to see how they were flying. And one of these eagles was discovered dead in Saudi Arabia by a guy who got the tracker and plugged in the tracker. And it turns out that people have now tracked the flights over the course of a year of these eagles. And there's a great map that you should look at online of the flight of eagles. And these eagles just go so far. They, they fly so much. They will go hundreds of miles in a day. And it's wonderful just to think, to imagine these magnificent creatures wandering the world and ignoring all the borders that we focus on and, and living their best uh, eagle life, migrating when they will. And, and uh, it's, it's great. They never fly over water. That was the most interesting thing about it. Is that they always avoid water. So check it out on Board Panda and other places. Look for, for the eagle map. Oh, neat. Uh, and we also, of course, are collecting listener chatters. We had a bunch of great ones this week. Please keep them coming by tweeting at Slate Gabfest with your listener chatter. And this one's from Parrish Berquist. Parrish Berquist points to a blog about from uh, Scientific American about the tragedy of the tragedy of the commons. And it's a piece by a UC Santa Barbara professor who writes about how we fundamentally fundamentally misunderstood and misinterpreted the classic essay, The Tragedy of the Commons, The Tragedy of the Commons, which which is fundamental in environmental policy, which argues that humans cannot take care of common resources. And Matto Mildenberger, who's the person who, who wrote about this, points out all the ways in which Hardin was wrong about this and that Hardin's own life is troublesome and problematic. So uh, check out Parish Berquist's recommendation about the tragedy of the tragedy of the commons. That is the GabFest for today. The show is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the, our managing producer. And Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Special thanks to engineer Dustin Gervais of CBS Radio. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabFest, or you can tweet chatter at us. And please remember, we've got a show coming up on June 8th in New York City at the SVA Theater in Chelsea. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for that great live show. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, David Plotz, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So if we were a real political podcast, we were the kind of political podcast that, that makes waves in political podcastdom, we would have a presidential candidate on right now. We probably would have had three on today. We'd have one on every week. We'd have Pete Buttigieg on. He would probably be co-hosting. Probably would have kicked me out, and he'd be co-hosting the show at this point. And we'd um, all be better off for it, surely. We'd definitely be better off with him co-hosting the show. Pete Buttigieg has been on almost as many podcasts as you have, Emily. You've been on so many <laughs> podcasts in the last week. He has probably been on more. Um, yeah. He was on two different Vox podcasts. He's been on Pod Save America. The Pod Save America gang has had on basically everybody in the Democratic field. That's not true, but they've had on a ton of a ton of the Democratic field. And podcasts, and that podcast in particular, but a lot of podcasts have become as much a stop as the CNN town hall. So 
I'm just curious. We're just curious. What is the case, John Dickerson? What is the case for politicians, in particular for candidates in this Democratic primary for president, to do podcasts? Well, the, the case is that the people who listen to podcasts tend to be activist types. Those are the people who are going to vote in primaries. The hosts of the podcast tend to be um, insiders, so they tend to be, you know, kind of... Uh, this is kind of the version of the second, of sort of saying the same point over again, but it's in it's in the clubhouse. It's the, you know, it's what's playing in the in the party's clubhouse. They get more time. They're not going to be, you know, whittled down to a soundbite. And I think the, be- the, uh, the benefit from our standpoint is that you get to have a longer conversation. You get to learn about candidates, who they are, why they made the choices that they made. Um, I mean, one of the things that we do uh, on television, we do television interviews and they get chopped down into pieces is put then the full interview up because there's a lot of stuff in there that people really want to see. Emily, is there is there any danger, do you think, for Pete Buttigieg, et cetera, to be doing podcasts? Is there any downside? I think it seems like an excellent way to test your message, your appeal, how you answer questions in a relatively safe space. Safe spaces can be super unsafe because when people get too comfortable, they sometimes say revealing things. But, like, that's part of the challenge of being a presidential candidate. You have to learn how to deal with that. And for all of these people, as they're getting used to being on the cam train trail, as they're trying to sharpen how they make their points, it seems valuable. And they're doing it in a way where they're opening themselves up to, you know, unfiltered questions, presumably, and also in a looser format where you're not expected to have tight answers. So I think that seems all to the good. I guess I've listened to, I would say, almost none of these. So I'm not sure how, whether it makes for good audio. Like, that's another question. Are these good shows that people want to hear? I think that's, you you make a good point. It's batting practice for these, for a lot of these candidates. Yes, They need it. I mean, remember, Barack Obama was... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 